I've been going back and forth on the first half of Acts 18. I have a summary, but then it turns out that my summary takes almost as long as it would just to read it. Um, but I'm going to stick with my summary because the commentary, I think, I think helps a little bit. Um, I, I'm not trying to say that I got it better than, the, than Luke. I'm just saying that there's so much going on in this chapter. Now, if you took this chapter just in and of itself, you might say, if, you're, if, you, if you've been asked to preach on this, you might say, there's nothing really preachable in there. I, I mean, to summarize Acts 18, Paul went here, then he did that. He met these people. He got in trouble. God rescued him. Then he went there. Then he went there. He met these people. And then he did this. It's just kind of a travel log. Uh, but there's years talked about here. I mean, when we hear about Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, and he, God blinds him, so he needs to be tended to uh, for quite some time. And then when he gets his vision back, 13, 12 to 14, but so let's just say 13 years passes before he gets sent off to Antioch to lead that church. So what Jesus died in between 30 and 35 AD or common era, however, whatever word you want to use to, to distinguish time nowadays. But, um, and we're probably, we're between 50 55, maybe as late as 60 AD in the writing, or at least the, 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 the process that Luke is talking about. So about 25 to 30 years has gone by since Jesus left. And what we find out that God has done in those 20 to 25 years is, it's miraculous to say the least. The hundreds of thousands of people that are converts to Christianity from a ragtag, ragamuffin group of fishermen it's unthinkable. So let me just tell you what happened in the first half of, the, uh, of, the, of, the, um, of Acts 18. Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now Corinth in that day is similar to San Francisco in the States. It's a port city, very cosmopolitan, which means of all the world, lots of different cultures, lots of different moralities, lots of different religions, lots of different non-religions, all kind of merging together. We think of... Um, of San Francisco with cable cars and traffic. Uh, nowadays, they're having some trouble with, with, with where people are living, with people that are living on the streets and all that kind of stuff. Same kind of thing in Corinth. Everything you could have found in the, mo everything you could find in the modern world, you could have found then, except they traveled by donkey, rich people. Some of them traveled by chariot, and they traveled on foot. For example, Lynn and I went to Chicago, uh, west of Chicago, on Friday. We went down there to pick something up, Morris, Illinois, and then came back. Um, and on the way back, there had been some accidents on the way there. And we thought, well, it'll be another three hours before we're coming back this way. So that that'll be clear, wasn't cleared up. It wasn't cleared up in um, three-tenths of a mile, 20 minutes. I don't know about you dads, but this dad doesn't love that. And I counted. But when Paul went from place to place, he walked. So what would have taken me a week if I were walking and should have taken us about six hours if we were driving, it took seven and a half. <laughs> we sometimes view ancient times with modern conveniences and sensibilities. I just want to caution you not to do that because the commitment it took for Paul to go all these different places, to land in Corinth, 
the commitment it took was significant. He met there Aquila and Priscilla. They were two believers who had been exiled from Greece. In Greece, uh, the, the, the ruler of Greece had gotten so frustrated with the, all the bickering between Jewish Jews and Jewish Christians that he finally said, the whole lot of you, out. And so God used those believers and spread them all around the known world. Priscilla and Aquila were two of those converts. Now, he met them, Paul met them in, in Corinth, and they, while he was waiting for Silas and Timothy to show up, uh, they'd gotten in some trouble before, and he was waiting for them because they were bringing some help, but he also just needed some brothers in arms. So he, he met with uh, Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers. We say tent maker, we think um, open house graduation tents, or we think uh, circus tents, or we think um, four-man uh, tents that you go camping in. Not that, he, was, he worked with canvas. So there's a lot of, and people needed canvas to cover things and, and to sh- for shade and all that kind of thing. But basically what it is, is they, 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 they worked in the city, in the, in the city marketplace. And so they got to know people and they would make an order and they would pr- fix, the, you know, they, they, they craft their order and then they would, so they established relationships with people. They got to know people. And then on the weekends, Paul would go to the synagogue and he would preach. But when Silas and Timothy showed up, he was emboldened. I don't know if it's because they came with some money so he didn't have to tent make right then or if he just had his brothers in arms. And so he went door to door, street to street, and every day to the synagogue to preach this new way that is Jesus. And this was often the case. After a while, some of the Jews rejected Paul and they even became abusive. Paul did this one time. I'm going to take my name tag off because I flinged it across the... So one time he's, he's, he's talking to the, to the Jews and they get abusive and they start, they start accusing him of things and they, they even threaten to beat him. And he goes, I throw off the dust of my clothes to you. What? Go wash them. I mean, we, we don't do that. But what he's saying is, I'm done. And he even says, your blood is on your own heads. I no longer go to the Jews. I now only go to the non-Jews, the Gentiles. So this is the time when God took the idea that it's first to the Jews and then to the rest of the world, where the Jews have heard. This has been years. It's been a couple of decades. The Jews have heard. And Paul, God's chosen apostle, is no longer going first to the Jews. He's now only going to those who have no concept of the one true God. Things were getting dicey for Paul. So one night, God gave him a vision and he says, don't be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent for I am, I am with you and no one is gonna attack you or harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half. Then Jews, now here's one of the things that happened, which I think is amazing. Uh, they got mad at him and he, when he said he's done with them and then he went off to a friend's house and the leader of the synagogue was at the friend's house the leader, the, the Jewish leader of the area, and Paul proclaimed the gospel to him, and this guy and his whole household became Christians and were baptized with the Holy Spirit and were baptized with water. Needless to say, the Jews are going to be a little upset about their Jewish leader. It'd be like me converting to Islam right here. It's that big of a deal. You would be shocked if your pastor, your preacher, suddenly took up another religion. That's what happened. They got mad. They took him to court. They, with false accusations, when they took him to court, they end up, I want to make sure I get this guy's name right, Galileo, um, 
the proconsul, they get him. Now, Galileo is a, is a big, big name. He was a, a direct advisor to Caesar. And so they bring him there. They're accusing him. And the expectation is that he's going to rule in their favor because they're trying to keep peace. He's trying to keep peace in Corinth. And before they even get done, Paul's about ready to stand up and defend himself. And Galileo says, I've had enough. If you don't have crimes or misdemeanors, enough. Those are the actual words. This is a little petty bickering about your own people, your own law. I'm done. Paul, go free. And so then they took out the new synagogue leader and they beat him. Okay, now that, that's a couple of years we just talked about in a few minutes. That brings us to the second half of Acts chapter 18. And it reads like this, beginning in verse 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed... He had his hair cut off at Centria because of a vow that he had taken. Now, that just, just a little commentary on that. Pretty common back then if you made a vow. If someone saved your life or if someone rescued or if someone sent you money or, or if you had said to God, God, if you would just allow me to be here for this amount of time and God granted your safety for that. The, the common thing to say when, when, you're, when you've paid off your debt or when you've completed your vow, you shave everything, your head. Now, Jewish men, long hair, long beards. If you, if those of you who know Kyle Borst, I'll use him as an example because he's not here to defend himself. He's got that big, long, ZZ top beard, right? Now, he doesn't have really long hair, but he's got that really long beard. If he showed up today, bald head like Kurt, bald face like me, you'd have no idea who he is until he spoke. Paul, this vow's completed, He's, he's, he's recognizable to everyone in Corinth. And as he begins to go, he's now kind of a new person. So when people meet him, they, they, they will see who he is, and then, then they will realize that he's Jewish. Not first Jew by how he looks, now otherwise. So there's some strategy in it. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, when they asked him to spend more time, he declined. And, uh, but as he left, he said, I'll, I'll come back if it's God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Now, you see all the cities we just talked about. He's sailing, he's walking, he's traveling. This is like me walking to the UP back over to Detroit, and then back over to here. That's a lot. That's a lot. In fact, it might be further than that. It might be like, like walking around to uh, Milwaukee and then up to Madison and then back around the UP and making stops along the way. This man's committed, in case you didn't notice. But he said, I'll come back if it's God's will. When he landed in Caesarea, he went up and he greeted the church and then he went down to Antioch. That was the church that he had been sent to lead after his 13 years of training. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, Paul, by God's call, went around the known world three times. Right there ended his second world tour. If you see a map... Of Paul's missionary journey, some with straight lines, some with dotted lines, some with dot, star, dot, star. Um, so you know which journey. We just finished number two. And we're only in Acts 18. 
Now, I want you to understand, I'm going to try to give you a picture of who I think Paul is like. I think Paul is like Pastor Greg. Again, not here to defend himself. He's on a boat. He was in uh, Surgeon Bay yesterday. He was in Sheboygan, Wisconsin today. A friend of his has to get his boat down Lake Michigan, then into the Mississippi, all the way down and around Florida. And he asked Greg to be his first mate on this two-week journey. Now, Greg, like Paul, had a former life. Pastor Greg was in sales for years. Paul was in Judaism for years. Paul had a different moral standard than he does now. Not saying it was a worse one, it was very stringent. Greg had a different way of looking at the world before. Paul had a conversion experience. Greg had a conversion experience. Paul dropped everything that he knew and changed everything to become an apostle, a messenger, a a missionary for Jesus Christ. Greg, on a trip down to Chicago and his vehicle, felt God's call. He called, he went home, he called his wife, he told her. She goes, I've been waiting. Knew that was coming. He's, there's this new call in Greg's life. He goes off to seminary. He trains up in righteousness. And now we have Greg here. Paul, everywhere he goes, he's talking about Jesus. Greg, everywhere he goes, he's talking about Jesus. Have you ever been in a restaurant with Greg Tenbrink? If you don't want to feel uncomfortable because you don't want someone talking about this church and Jesus, don't sit with Greg. He, he can talk to a doorknob. But there's not a server in town at a restaurant that has not been told, asked if they have a church home. If they don't, you're welcome at community. I guarantee, I can't guarantee this, but I'm guaranteeing it, that when we will see next week a line of of dots on a map going down the Mississippi River where people are watching our live stream because Greg has said, do you have a church home? No? Well, join us at community on live stream. That's just Greg. He is sold out completely. Paul is sold out. Enough so that he's willing to travel the known world three times just for the honor to proclaim the word of God. But we're about to meet another one. And I'm not saying about this, this comparison with Paul and, and, uh, and Greg. I'm not making a leap that I'm still comparing that. But we're about to meet this new guy, Apollos. And you heard, I'm sure, Paul in some of his writings when he says, um, hey, some say they follow Paul, others say Apollos. He's like, that, that doesn't matter. It's Jesus. But I want you to understand this person we're about to be introduced to. Um, anyone ever heard of Andy Stanley? I love his teaching and preaching style personally. And what about Francis Chan? You know, and I'm not a big, I don't love the whole celebrity pastor thing, but these two men are authentic They love the Lord. They're excellent communicators. Let's just say that next week, Andy Stanley calls me today and says, hey, I want to see if we want to switch pulpits. So you want to come down to where I am and I'll come up to where you are. And then then Francis Chan calls and says, hey, you want to come preach at my church and I'll come preach at yours? Here's what I guarantee. Over those next two weeks when I'm in Andy Stanley's church and Francis Chan's church, those people are going to be disappointed. And three three weeks later when I come back here, so are you. They're excellent communicators. Paul, passionate. Paul, fearless. He has great theology. He develops a Christology, the understanding of who Christ is. This idea of the Trinity is developed by Paul in his writing. It's amazing. The guy has a mind like nobody else, but, but he wasn't the most eloquent of people. 
If you, if you have the privilege of translating some of his, his writings in, uh, in the original language of Greek, he had, have you ever had a, you ever say to someone on a text string, you go, hey, what's up? And you get back on the little screen, a text string that's that long, no punctuation, that's Paul. Paul will go on and on and on. One sentence, we have four paragraphs worth in one of his books. One sentence. Paul is not the most eloquent of men. Phenomenal, absolutely capable, unthinkable mind. He's a genius. Apollos. He'd be a Francis Chan. He'd be an Andy Stanley. He'd be in the older generation, another generation, Dr. D. James Kennedy. So here's what they say about him. Meanwhile, all that stuff that Paul's doing. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, that's in Egypt, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man and with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began speaking boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They invited him into their home, and I love how Luke puts this, and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he, had a great, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in, the public, in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Now, here's what's going on here. It's, I'll make the connections about all the different things in a moment, but I just want you to see what's going on with Apollos. Apollos is a self-proclaimed missionary for the Messiah. And he doesn't yet know that he's God with skin on. See, we're pretty sure, not guaranteed, but pretty sure that John the baptizer, when he was, when his disciples, they wanted to know, they even, John even sent him when he's in prison. Hey, are you the one that we're supposed to be waiting for? And Jesus says, you know, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. He doesn't say the prisoners are set free. John's beheaded. His disciples, those that were convinced that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that the Jews have been waiting for, the new king, they scatter and they go telling everyone. They're going all around the known world to the Jewish pockets of the known world to tell people that you might not know it, you might not see it, but our Messiah is here. And so he, he, he's worked and he's, he's learned from the Old Testament to, to try to see all the messianic texts and he's, and he's, he's come up with it. But what, what, what Apollos doesn't know, he doesn't know that there's a triune God. He knows the Yahweh, the one true God, but he doesn't know that Yahweh, the one true God, is Father, is Son, and is Holy Spirit. He only has the baptism of repentance. He has not received the Holy Spirit yet. So he is self-proclaimed. He's so moved by the fact that God would intersect with his people, that he would send the chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah. He's so excited that he's come, and he's so convinced that he's studied the Scripture so that he can prove the fact. He starts traveling around the known world of his own volition, going into synagogues to reason with them and show them that the Messiah is here, but he has not yet heard the whole story. So Priscilla and Achilla, who know, they sit him down with hospitality and they say, not only is he Messiah, he's God. And he died and he took the sting out of death. Can you imagine Apollos saying, I've committed my life to this and now I find out that it's even better than I thought? And they send him off with their credentials to go, to go, and to go. Here's what's happening. There's so much. 
God is keeping his promises. The same things he promised before the foundation of the universe, he still promises today. The plan God had when he made the first covenant with a chosen person, Abram, was your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore, as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you will be a light. You will bring my love, my, my compassion, faith in me to all the peoples of the world. And you and I are those peoples of the world. See, God, even though the people of God didn't always act the way they should, God knew that he, one day Jesus would come, he would do what he does, and then he's going to make sure that the old temple, that idea that was a representation, kind of a shadow of what's true, that the temple is now the Holy Spirit of God in living within people. And every single one of those people is to be that light, that salt, that grain of sand, that, that light in the sky, every one of us. And how does he do it? He does it by raising up Abram. And then Isaac, and then Jacob, and he goes on and on and on. Then he raises up judges, and he raises up kings, and he raises up prophets, and then he raises up disciples, and then he raises up apostles, and then those apostles go around the known world, and they raise up leaders. When Paul goes to a place, he spends a month, or he spends a year and a half, or he spends three years, but he raises up leaders. He finds those who respond quickly, who respond well. He trains them in righteousness, and then he leaves them. He lives them, and now they're sent. They're to be light. There to be instructed, there to administer the ministry of reconciliation that is in Jesus Christ through faith in him by the grace of God alone. They are left to do it. And some of these churches, Corinth, this church still exists today. God, his plan has always been to raise up leaders and send them all around the world and saturate every heart with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everyone. So let me ask you this question. How many ministers do we have at Community Reformed Church? See, Pastor Doug, Pastor Chris, Pastor Greg, Pastor Kurt, Pastor Andrew, Nate, Trent. Well, if we really push it, you know, with the, with the title, well, yeah, okay, Mo, and we could really, we, if we want to make professionalize it, but you know how many there are after today with all these people that were up here? Children included, I, don't, I didn't check the database, but I'm pretty close. Children included, how many people are at this church? 2,300. That's not average attendance, but that's how many people say that this is their church home. So how many ministers do we have? How many missionaries do we have? How many sent ones do we have in this church? 2,300. Yeah, Paul was sent to Achaia. Paul was sent to Galatia. Paul was sent all around the known world. Paul ended up in prison several times in several different places and led people to Christ while he was there. He sent me to Crestbrook. He sent others to Holiday. He sent others to wherever you work. If you're the lunch person at Zeeland West, he sent you there. See, you are a continuation of God's strategic plan. So I'm gonna ask you another question. When did God first love you? When he knit me together in my mother's womb. Nope. You know when God first loved you? When he first thought of you. When did he first think of you? Before he put order into chaos. Before he made light. Before he created time. You were his idea then. You are his idea now. And you will always be his idea. And he's always thinking about you. He's always speaking about you. He's always thrilled that you're his child. 
And he, your peace in his strategy of raising up leaders and going and being a representative of Christ somewhere, whether it be next door or whether it be to Papua New Guinea or Guatemala, whether it be to the former Soviet bloc, whether you're a church planter in Hungary, or whether you're going down to Peru to make sure that children get clean water and they don't die of thirst, whatever it may be. It may be to the police officer that stopped at the corner and it's hot and his car's not working anymore and you bring him water. I don't know what it is, but somewhere, sometime, you're called, we all are, to represent Christ because he's multiplied you. He's made you who you are. He's trained you up in righteousness. He's grown you up with the love of God and he wants you to share it. Just like Paul did. Just like Pastor Greg did. Just like Apollos does. You might not be the mouthpiece. I know for me, I get the honor to speak in front of people on a regular basis, but I tell you what, I don't like, I don't like it when I'm sitting next to someone on an airplane and they say, what do you do? Because I know then they're going to, and I'm going to tell them they're going to apologize for swearing the last 10 minutes. I have one friend that he brings, he's Catholic, but he brings a really big Catholic Bible that says Catholic Bible, including the Apocrypha, and he wears a big, huge wooden cross. And he sits in the aisle when he's flying uh, Southwest, he, you know, because he flies a lot. So he sits down, and, he, and when people walk up, you know how you don't make eye contact? You look down at your knees so that people, maybe, maybe they won't sit here, maybe they won't sit here. He goes, hey, with that big cross and that Bible, and poof, they just go on by. <laughs> Probably not the best mission work, the most missiological approach. Your calling is greater than mine. And I don't think most of you believe that. See, because I've been called, and the other pastors too, and set aside to study the scriptures and to work on them till they work on us, and then we bring what what work God was doing in us to you. If you come and sit down, when I'm at work, and you come and sit down with me, you will be disappointed if you don't get biblical advice. You'll be disappointed if I'm willing to sacrifice the scriptures to make you feel better you know what to expect from me. Where you work and in your neighborhoods, that is not true of you. It is harder to take a stand for Christ where you live and where you work than where I live and where I work. Because there are expectations and people will avoid me like the plague if they don't want to hear about Jesus. But they don't know that they can get it from you. And so you have a high calling to go out to earn the right to be heard, to speak the grace, the mercy, and the love of Jesus Christ into people's lives, sometimes with words, sometimes with behavior. But you have a high calling. My calling is to encourage you to do that. So I want you to know that you're in really good company. You're like Paul. You're like Apollos. You're like Priscilla and Aquila. God has grown you up He's raised you up in righteousness, and he said, go be my ambassadors wherever you are. You are one of 2,300 ministers here. You are a missionary. You are much beloved by God. You're his idea, and he's been planning for you right now, this very day, since before he created the universe, so that you would do what he's called you to do to accomplish the good works that he's prepared in advance for you to do. And he wants this simple thing. He wants people 
to see our good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do, but people will see our good works and therefore praise the God we worship to praise our Father in heaven. Not see our good works and praise us, but see how we live as we point to Christ. People will be drawn to him. Let's pray. Courage, Lord, it's what we need. Wisdom, but mostly, Lord, we need to know that you're our Father and that we have your authority and we're to give away the very things you've given to us by being gracious and merciful and loving and kind. There's nothing that Western civilization needs more right now than people willing to saturate everywhere, every heart, with the Holy Spirit of God. So, Lord, use us, send us, and be proud of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please rise to receive God's benediction? The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine on you. Be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance toward you. That's a look on God's face. I know it's a, and I always try to explain this a little bit, but you know, when you have someone you love and you kind of hold their face and you just look at them in the eyes, or if you have a baby and you just, oh, God gives you his face and he will not break eye contact. He smiles at you and he gives you peace. And all of God's people say, amen. Go with and in the peace of Christ.